Hi, I'm Gary Knoll. I'd like to welcome you to a continuation of our self-empowering lectures. Thoughts, if they make sense, use them. If they don't, we'll have another one tomorrow. Right now, I'm in East Texas in the mountains. I'm with a group of people here in the room, so when I'm not looking at the camera, I'm looking at them. And these people are undergoing a clinical study to see can we, over a period of 90 days, 60 here, and then 30 at home, can they change the biological markers to slow down the aging process? And in the process of doing that, can it mitigate some of the illnesses or infirmaries, or can it help the brain and slow down, prevent, or even reverse Alzheimer's, dementia, Parkinson's, high blood pressure, high blood sugar, obesity, all the different things we think are normal to the aging process. But out of 46 lectures I've given here in just the first four weeks, only one was about health. Everything else was more important. And that is laying the foundation upon which you're going to be able to change and hold that change, build on that change, improve that change. It has been my experience that if you just give people a protocol like take these vitamins and these minerals and eat these foods and have these juices and do these exercises, that will certainly benefit a person to a degree, but it's to a degree. And on a spectrum of diseases here, and you're starting their journey of wellness here, disease is always ahead of you until, boom, death. And the reason is because we're ultra, ultra conservative when it comes to doing anything for our health and ultra-ultra-liberal when it comes to causing disease. For example, you never walk into McDonald's, go over and say, how many french fries do you have there, buddy? What's it to you? We well, have 20 french fries. Yeah? You're going to eat them? Of course I'm going to eat them. I'm going to eat the hamburger that goes with it. I'm going to drink this big cola that goes with it. You would never do that. That's that person's right to eat whatever they want. But now that person's going to, in time, realize those french fries saturated with trans fats and lots of sodium and they're going to end up probably bringing in anywhere from a thousand to five thousand milligrams of sodium in one meal in a day. And we wonder why we're a nation that has high blood pressure. And so we want to do what we want to do when we want to do it and we don't think of the consequences. Why? And I believe that an area that we have not talked about as a society is living our lives through either abundance or scarcity. And how we can learn possibly to rebalance our lives, regain our health, have a whole new perspective on the choices we make, and make better choices because you are the total sum of all your choices. If you're looking into a mirror right now, you're not seeing you today. You're seeing everything you've done that got you to this place. So wouldn't it be nice to know that in a year from now, you could look in a mirror and say, ah, wow, compare a year ago, compare now. Totally different. And that's because you made different choices. Now, we don't talk about abundance unless we're seeking it. And then abundance is almost always, by consensus, something that's material something that we can handle, um, we can wear, we can live in, our cars, our homes, our apartments, our clothes. And we think that we're succeeding because we've been able to accumulate these things. 
just imagine this. If you had grown up in a middle-class working neighborhood, as I did, and probably many of you in this room did, and you became successful, that most people do become successful, but not everybody becomes powerful, rich, or a celebrity in becoming successful. But if you're a plumber, an electrician, and a school teacher, and if you're uh, you know, a banker, and you're a professor, well, all of you have mastered those crafts, right? You succeeded. So if you succeed, but your ideas of what you want to do with that success are more constrained, are more, let's say, low-key, more humble, you don't need a bigger house in order to find happiness in the house you have, right? So you're not as eager to go out there and get rid of this and get something bigger, and then something bigger, because it doesn't end. I counsel a lot of wealthy people and the tens of thousands of people I've counseled, billionaires. And no matter what they have, they never seem satisfied with it. But if you're not satisfied with what you have, are you not satisfied with the people in your life, with your friends, the environment, your mates, your children? Are you always trying to do more with them? And for what reason? Because you're thinking that life is about abundance. And the more you can achieve, the more abundance you can show. Therefore, there's more relevance to you. You are deferred to. And we do. We have a hierarchical society where those who are given all the ability to make policies, no matter what their lack or their ability to make a decision, if they're gifted and have a knowledge of how to solve a crisis, we automatically assume if you're powerful, if you've been selected by some inner sanctum group, then you're our modern-day oracle. And we rarely question these people. For example, we didn't question when Libya was bombed into oblivion and its people, the most prosperous people, the wealthiest people, the longest-lived people, the healthiest people, the most free people in all of Africa, 54 countries in Africa, number one. No one questioned that. If someone told us on high that they were an enemy of the state, then the moment you become the other, you no longer are prosperous. You're no longer in abundance. Abundance of friendship, abundance of joy, abundance of a model of behavior to help your people. If you have zero poverty and you have no homeless people and you have no crime, and if you have longevity, you're living a longer lifespan and people in the United States, you have a higher literacy rate and people in the United States or Great Britain or France. And because you're in Africa, ah, that hidden notion of condition racism. Now, you're not going to go out there and say or do anything. It's racist. But on a subconscious level, well, that's Africa or that's South America. And it's there because otherwise we would care about what people do around the world. We would try to understand how Bhutan has the highest rating for happiness in the world. Right? What makes them happy? What do you got there? You got cars and no. People live rather frugal lives. They're up in the mountains, beautiful pastures. Well, why would you be happy? I've got everything and I'm not happy. Yeah. So the whole idea of striving for abundance is conditioned upon those who had no abundance earlier and went through some form of deprivation or suffering and didn't want you, their children, to suffer. That's the greatest generation, our parents. They suffered. Between the Great Depression and the first war, uh, Second World War, they had about 16 years of having it rough. 
if they had to wear hand-me-downs, if they didn't know where their next meal was coming, unless they grew the food or had someone who they were working with or cooperatively sharing or a family member or a church uh, feed them, they might go without food for a long period of time, and many did, many did. I was even told of someone that my mother knew who grew up, and they had to go on a boxcar. They had to go wherever they could find work. They took their little suitcase, they got on a boxcar with strangers. There was a common ethic, you know, leave people alone. If you're on the boxcar, we already got it rough, friend. Don't make it rougher, all right? And my mother said that when she would, she was on a farm, and each morning the train, or one train, where they knew the conductor, the conductor would stop there. And they had five minutes because conductors had to be on time, right? And so my, my great aunt would set up a picnic table. And she had a little um, shower room there with a curtain, men on one side, women on the other. It's just a small thing. And with a sink, you could wash. And, uh, and they would take half of whatever they had made the day before. If they harvested food, they'd make sandwiches, something that people could take with them. And if they, whatever they had, if they made a bar of soap, because they'd make soap back then, uh, they would wrap up some soap. So sometimes they had more and sometimes they had less. Uh, but that also taught them how to be frugal. It taught them how to save. It taught them, my mom said this was the most perfect farm, and I saw the farm over in Little Hawking, Ohio. I was just a kid when I saw this, but my vegan great-aunt, she was the only one who was vegan. They thought she was strange, but she had, she had a wiry body, lots of strength. She climbed right up an apple tree. She's up in that apple tree shaking, and this apple's falling all over me. Pick them up, Gary, pick them up. That's going to be apple butter, apple cider, apple dried apples. And so I was there when she would cut the apples and then land them out on these screens, just a regular screen, what would look like a screen door, right? And then she put a muslin cloth over it so the flies and bugs wouldn't get on it. And then after four days of being in the sun, she'd go over and we'd turn each one over. Another week, they were dry. Then they'd pick them all up and put them in a big 55-gallon barrel, and she would wipe down the barrel with bee propolis to sterilize it. And then she'd put, on, she'd put a date on there, dried apples. And then she had dried peaches and pears and nectarines and plums. She had all the, in one part of the barn, and the barn was like an Amish barn. It was just meticulous, clean. And it was uh, about eight feet underground. She had a root cellar where the temperature stays even all year round. So that's where the root vegetables would go, the parsnips and, and turnips and carrots. And then she says, no, don't take those out of the ground. They can stay there 12 months a year. Yeah, who knew? I didn't know. A little kid. But she had all these different fields growing, and something was growing 12 months a year. She had herbs in the top of the barn. And so everyone came to her because she was the apothecary. She knew which herbs to use if you had a cold or flu or diarrhea, whatever it was. And she had baking ovens, and they were baking. And then the oven was... Um, in the house, but the firing was on the outside of the house, so it kept the house warm uh, in the fall and at nights and wintertime. And then in the morning, you had all this nice bread or whatever you were baking done. So that's what they would give to these people. And, and my mom said that once her and her sister went down, and that was their turn. They would go down at 4.30 in the morning, so when the train came, they had to work fast. And uh, so she said three people got off. There was two men and a woman. And she said she's watching him. Now, she's young also, but she's watching him. And, and, and they go over, and they, they're brushing their teeth and washing their face. And the, the man is 
made it put his tie on. Why, if you're on a, why if you're going nowhere and have no money, why would you brush your shoes like this, right, on your pants and, and try to, because my great aunt came down and says, don't judge them. They may not have anything, but they still have their dignity. Allow them that. And then they'd make, you know, whatever they had, put them in a uh, handkerchief and hand it to them. People had something to go on. See, this is the hidden story of how people, when you see that, when you see people that you can't change their lives, you can't change the circumstances, but maybe you're learning a lesson at the same time they're living a lesson. And that's the wisest thing we can do. Learn from other people's experiences. See what is going on and how do they handle something. How would you handle it? And so my mother believed in austerity. And she believed that as long as we were a family and had an extended family, which we did as most Americans did, that you had all, everything you really needed for happiness. You didn't have to go outside of yourself for happiness. So that wasn't an issue. So we had an abundance of happiness and joy and laughter and fun. We had an abundance of health. Go out and, you know, run, run, run and play. And we did. And an abundance of friendship. You know, we like people. We like being liked. And then when we got into school, we were expected to do our homework. We were expected to be mannered. We were expected to be social and care for those in our neighborhood who couldn't care for themselves. Nobody ever had to ask, all of us, everyone I knew, no one had to ask, there's someone up the street there that's having a you know, difficult time, go and see if you can help them. It was a social commitment that you cared about the commons. You cared about the people you knew, the people in your neighborhood. Maybe it was on that block. But, you know, every block has two sides of a street, so there were 10 to 20 people that you cared about, and they cared about you. Then you had the other end of that. You had people who didn't have to have a lot of material. They had jobs. After World War II, we had abundance of jobs, and people for the first time in mass were going to school, and then they had children. Then we were the big leap forward. We had the highest level of education the baby boomers. And so the essential lessons that our parents lived, we didn't live. We only heard some of their stories to the degree they were willing to share it. So we had to create our own stories. And our stories didn't come from an abundance. It came from, it came from taking for granted much of what our parents gave us. Because then when we went through the college system, we started seeing the body politic, we started seeing corruption, we started seeing the Vietnam War and corporatization. By the mid-1970s, we were in full-blown retreat, offshoring jobs to other countries, factories that had been there for 100 years, uh, closing down. And then suddenly, we didn't have an abundance of jobs. You know? And especially if you were not just out of college, if you were just a regular person, you had to go and look for work. And we forgot about the sanctity of the person. We forgot about, at one time, having an abundance of care for others. And instead, we had a scarcity. So we went from an abundance as a family unit, as a society that shared common morals, ethics, manners, and standards and character. And there was also a sense of merit in what we did. For example, we didn't 
I'm sure there were people who cheated, but there was no mass cheating in schools. You know, the, no teacher ever said, well, I'm going to float the standard. This is what's done today. You got all these kids down here at D's and F's, and you got these few kids up here with A's, so let's just bring them all up. Well, how's that help anybody? Uh, if you're working honestly and, and really diligently, and you're succeeding and other people are not caring, or not as bright, or motivated, or don't have the same sports system, why should they be equal to you? And today, everything is not about the merit of your being, the quality of your skills, the uniqueness of your being. What do you have that's unique and a gift, and how have you mastered that? That's irrelevant. We want to assume today that everyone's equal. Well, everyone's not equal. Right? We're all unique and different. But we also have different values. So we're going to suddenly believe that we only should have one value, a corporatized, monetized value, that if you, your abundance is not about abundance of love and abundance of happiness and abundance of care and abundance of joy and abundance of, of sharing positive energy with the people in your life and doing something constructive for society, but the abundance of material possessions. And that started, if you remember, about late 1970s, and it really kicked in in the 1980s where we believed that we had to have something, you know, we needed it. But we didn't. We just wanted it. And we wanted it because other people had it. So in a mass way, you talk about coronavirus being easily transmitted, it is. A lot more people have than we have any idea of, and we'll only know that when everyone's tested. But imagine as a society, as one generation of senior citizens who were then in their 50s and 60s, and we're in our 20s, and we're seeing abundance of what can happen to me. And we became the me generation. And it was all about <clears throat> put everything you can into your work. You got a family, but you know, unfortunately, the family is going to sa sacrifice your time because you want to have more stuff. Now, do you remember hands here, if this is true? Do you remember when you were growing up on a Sunday, there would always be someone's house you went to, one of the elders, one of the oracles of your, your community, right? Where you'd have dinner, the kids go play, they'd eat in the kitchen, you know, and, or you give them a quarter, they go to the movies. But you were together. Did that happen to you? Yes? Everyone in the room, yes. What happened to me? And that's when you felt the, the bond, because for every problem, there were multiple minds helping you with a solution. That was important. You had people who had your back. And so they wouldn't let you fail. Now, if you did something really foolish, they would tell you, learn that lesson. And they were emphatic about it. Nobody ever sassed a school teacher. That was just never, ever done. Ever. You get home, your parents would be waiting for you, and that wouldn't have a happy outcome for you. So there was this idea that maybe we should be respectful to people because maybe they're our seniors and they're wiser than we. Maybe they've seen a life and they've seen the consequences of positive action, negative action. Maybe that we should listen to them because they've heard a lot more, seen a lot more, experienced a lot more than we have. And we've been, unfortunately, growing into this new, this new bubble where it was all about us. And then when the computers came in, it was about driving Driving at home, every day was about getting more, getting more, getting more. And so because my generation was the most educated and the first really fully educated um, 
in American history, we succeeded. My God, did we succeed. We did everything. No idea was off the table, and there were no limits on what you could do. And unfortunately, it's like saying, you all have freedom to do anything you want, and there's no limitation. Well, when there's no limitation, there's no discipline, there's no sense of awareness of what happens if I take my freedom to an extreme, then you're into emotional anarchy. Then you automatically, first thing you lose, boom, you lose empathy. You lose, you lose understanding the consequence of your actions, your success, your extremes that could impact someone else. It's, you're making something, that's all you care about. Then suddenly everything else is filtered. All consequences to someone else being adversely affected is gone. It's no longer in your conscious. So then we have to, we have to intentionally buffer and put into place safeguards so we do not think of the consequences of our actions except the consequence that we succeed, we get ahead, we have something more. We have an abundance of stuff and we have an abundance of need of attention. Think of all the celebrities that need attention constantly. And people in power need attention. They have to show their power constantly. And think of the people who have that dominant ego, the male or female, the alpha, alpha male and female. There's no ceiling for them. <laughs> there's never been a time in American history where more, there's more safe places for women to work, to be educated. Safest place in America is on a college campus for a woman because no one can limit them, and nor should they. But then if you grow up in a bubble, and what if you no longer have respect for others? And it's all about not the meritocracy of are you ethical, are you moral, are you decent, are you kind, are you thoughtful, are you sharing, are you giving, are you a person that wants the world to be a better place, not just better for you, but for everyone? Are you, are you that ambassador of peace and prosperity for other people. Because it's easy to do. We've got enough resources, right? We've got enough food to feed 10 billion people. It's just, it's controlled by a small group. And therefore we have food shortages and food insecurity to a billion people on the planet. So one person can have more than they could ever use and other people don't have enough that they need. That's not done by accident and that's not done in a vacuum. Millions of people have to participate in this destruction of our environment, the manipulation of our economies, until one day we look around and America has been either ghettoized, which is the majority, or is in the process of being neglected, or then you have gentrification, which you have green zones of prosperity. And of course, where do people want to live then? The green zone. You want to get out of college and go to the green zone. You want to go to where they can party every night and do drugs and there's no consequence to your action. You can make as much money as you want. So there's no meritocracy. There is just unmitigated looting of all the resources you can. And if you're famous, it's not good enough to be famous. I've counseled some very famous people. They call me, they need help, and I help them. I don't judge how they made their money. That's not my right. They're there to be helped. I'm there to help them. My hope is if I help them in the way that I help people by understanding how your, your, your beliefs, your values, are they at the high end of the spectrum or at the low end? Because in all the counseling I do, that's probably 90% of what I do in my counseling. The 
protocols are generally about 10%, but they work. And I've had a lot of people say, you know, I never thought about why I was sick. Because I just looked at the symptoms, my digestive problems, my, my colitis, my ileitis, Crohn's disease, constant uh, bloating and gas and distension, until I started realizing I'm holding my angst in my gut. I never express it. I never say what I want to say when I should have said it because I'm afraid of the repercussions. I'm afraid of what happens if someone comes back at me, if a dominant ego or an overwrought silent ego suddenly smashes into my comments about what I don't like. I said, give me an example. And someone said, well, I'm in a relationship that unfortunately is loveless. It was good at the beginning and then it went downhill until I started to realize that this person doesn't care what I think, doesn't care what I feel. This person is very dominating. And so every decision is her decision and I have to go along with it. And if I don't like it, she suddenly starts hitting on me, not physically, but verbally. Now, how many times can you take being insulted till you finally just collapse into this sealed place where you don't say anything, you don't communicate, you feel it, and it all goes inside? Well, where does it go inside? Does it go to your heart? Goes to your brain? Because it's going to go to some place, that energy. It's going to block some of our chakras. And then one day, now you got the illnesses. So you got the bad situation and you got the consequences not dealing with it. And so I said, well, it's just information. Why do you personalize the information? Why do you feel that you, somehow this person should have the right to speak with you in a way that a stranger would never speak? You would never tolerate someone uh, coming up to you in the street and calling you an idiot and a fool and disgusting. You would never allow that. So, why are you still in that relationship? Ah, well, because this person began to look at life as scarcity. Now, had they been in the right relationship with someone and harmonizing positive energy, there would be an abundance of love, joy, excitement, creativity, sharing, caring, passion. Every day would have been exciting to get up and meet because You'd be at your best. Someone else would be at your best. You'd want to be at your best. You'd want to grow. You'd want to show that this relationship is more vital than either of you separately. There's a synergy where two people can be better at what they do than one. That's the abundance of all good things that are thriving and harmonizing. But what you hope to have and what you end up getting were two different things. And unfortunately, we maladapt to the circumstances and suddenly what made us unique and what we really feel and what we want to do becomes subordinated to what someone else demands. So your gifts and your unique talents become secondary to what someone else wants you to do in order to support them in that relationship. And frequently, that support means, I'm not feeling good about myself today, so what I don't like about myself, I'm going to put, put on you. And that's what a lot of people do in relationships. They project what they don't like about themselves, what they can't resolve about themselves, the circumstance they can change, they throw it on you. And then they make you feel as if you're guilty for whatever they're doing. So I said, well, if it's all just information, why don't you just simply say to this person, start this way, I'd like to share something with you. Are you aware that the words you use to communicate with me are harmful? me. 
that almost everything you do now is putting me down. And I've, I allow myself to have no self-esteem, no strength of character, no vitalism. And I'm actually fearful being in your presence because you have a no-taking no prisoner attitude. You're, you're metal to the pedal emotionally all the time, demeaning and demanding. And so I just want to ask, why? Now the answer will be revealing. If the person doubles down and says, well, because you're an idiot, or you're the, then if you continue in that relationship, you're a fool. There's a time when you have to say, this dance is over, and the music stopped a year ago. If you can't do that, then don't blame anything else except you. And I believe that we are a nation that, a nation that is by and large in a lot of unhealthy relationships because the relationships our grandparents had lasted a long time. And if you want to see some real joy and love, go back to the people that we took for granted. And they lived their whole lives in harmony. Now, they didn't have an abundance of stuff, but whatever they had, they maintained. My great uncle, who was kind of the, the, the person who was the catalyst for our whole family, he was an engineer. And everything in his house was just meticulous, especially downstairs, because I loved, I loved building things. And he had every single tool. And he had jars, like glass jars, with every bolt and screw, and everything was painted on the wall. So if, when you finished something, you knew exactly where to put it back, because there was a place there for it. The place was always clean and neat. It just, and only after he had passed did I go up there and appreciate what a remarkable person he was. Everything was low key. He didn't talk a lot, but he did a lot. He was always building stuff and fixing stuff. If someone had a screen door, he'd go fix it. If something wasn't working, he'd fix it. But he lived in, in that quiet space of balance, emotional balance, physical balance. And he had an intent to live a, a life as complete as he could. So even after he had retired, he didn't retire from doing things. And everyone knew you could count upon him. Well, how many of the millennials can you count upon? How many of the baby boomers can you count upon? Are they living that life or are they desperate because they bought stuff they didn't have, created debt they shouldn't be in, and look at life as, you know, what's up, what's in it for me? What's in it for me? Instead of, what's in it for us? How can we work together and make something better? And so, when a person allows someone to use them for their own incompleteness and abuse them verbally, their, their self-esteem is going to go down and their silent ego is going to turn in and they're going to start processing disease. High blood pressure, obesity, diabetes, and uh, cancers. Now, one day, their whole life is no longer focused upon dealing with the abuse or the neglect, or the lack of anything substantive in a relationship that's on their disease. So then they make the disease their relationship. And people have very unhealthy relationships with their disease. The disease just obsesses the person. They're constantly in this state of mind. The disease is everything. The disease is everything. All day long. And so therefore, 
they self-fulfill what other people thought of them. You're a loser. Then they feel like they're a loser. Can't you do anything right? And they can't do anything right. That's what they believe. That is scarcity at the extreme end. Scarcity of support, healthy support, kind support, positive support, scarcity of optimism, scarcity of, of something worth living for. And then one day they pass. And no one ever knows that tension that brought them to that point. So I believe that we should <clears throat> stop before we go into any relationship and question, what am I doing this for? What am I seeking? What is incomplete in myself that I'm looking for in another person? Am I willing to be honest with that person about my own deficiencies, my own insecurities? Would they say, whoa, I'm not signing up for this and walk away? And are you looking for what their deficiencies are? Because the best of a relationship is not limited except for what a person doesn't reveal that's negative, the dark side. So share the best with someone, absolutely. But the more that they resolve these dark you know, traumas and abuses, when they can resolve that, then all that energy comes up. And now you're living with an abundance, absolute abundance of joy and happiness. Now, we all go through crisis. We all have been abused verbally or some physically. We've all had people betray us and lie about us. We've all had people defy us. We've had people undermine us. Sometimes our own, own, our own family members do this because they feel that they're familiar enough with us they can. But at what point do we let all that go and say, okay, I couldn't handle all that, but today I can handle myself. And then today, I'm not going to allow anyone in my life that abuses me on any level. I'm not going to allow anyone at work to do it. I'm not going to allow anyone at home to do it. And I'm not going to allow society to do it. Therefore, I'm going to seek an abundance of insight with intentional awareness. I'm going to look at the body politic. I'm going to look at the environment. I'm going to look at our educational institution. I'm going to go through life and look at all the major pillars of a, of a society and ask, are they serving the needs of the citizens or are they uh, the problem to the citizens? And then I can know where my own balance should be, what I should surrender in the way of beliefs that no longer are accommodating or should, should not be accommodating the dysfunction of a society. And I'm not going to be just a, an ideology. I'm not going to be an extension of someone else's cultish belief systems. And almost everything that you believe in, and almost all the people out there who require you to believe in them, are cults. <clears throat> they're not asking you for your opinion. They're asking you for their support, your support. And that support means financial support. It means political support. And it means ideological support. So once you give that rare and treasured gift of trust to someone else, they better be Mahatma Gandhi uh, or Martin Luther King because you're going to get taken advantage of. And then you're going to become a victim. And then you're going to go from abundance of trust and faith to scarcity of trust and faith. Abundance of will to change and looking for the opportunities within your own life to grow and be a better person to a scarcity of courage, a scarcity of commitment, a scarcity of, uh, of empathy and interest in that which impacts other people. You'll be the person peering through the window blinds, looking at what happens to the neighbors who lost their home that you knew for 25 years, and yet the blinds close because 
you have a scarcity of concern for others because you have an abundance of insecurity for yourself. So abundance can be negative and it can be positive depending upon what the abundance is. I know people who have, well, two of my friends were billionaires, two, both miserable people. They weren't bad people. They had a lot of good qualities, but they were never happy because whatever they had was never enough. And in fact, one of my buddies was a top producer, financier in Hollywood. He quietly financed films, took some percentage off dollar one, and, and he made some good choices. Uh, but one day uh, he said, let's uh, go down to Palm Springs. I was visiting, uh, doing a fundraiser for the sister station I was on for 33 years, KPFK, and I had, a, I had two days. I went out early. And so he said, let's, I have a buddy down in, um, that uh, used to work for me um, in Europe, and he, I want to go see him. Come on down. Well, I hadn't been to Palm Springs. I'd never seen it. So I thought, okay. And so we drove down there, but it turns out he hadn't called his friend and his friend had his own family over, so there was no room. So my buddy says, okay, well, there's a convention in town. There's no place to sleep. And I said, well, I'm a scout. He said, well, I'm an Eagle Scout. I said, well, good. And we went and bought, you know, a sleeping bag and we got ourselves some stuff and we spent two days in the desert. And it was so joyful, so much fun because this 60, at that time I was about uh, 35, he was 65. And all that we did were the things we would have done as kids, as scouts, right, in the woods. Everything was wonderful to see and, you know, building our shelter, all this stuff. And he said, my God, Gary, he said, it's been so long since I've had a day to reclaim some of the, uh, the uniqueness of my youth. And he said, I can't tell you how pleasurable this was. He said, I just feel liberated. It was, we were in the desert, we were looking up at the stars, and it was dark. As a result, you saw the stars, you saw the heavens. And in that moment, I had one of those, I'm sure you've all had it too, where you're in nature and one day, and there's no noise around, no people, and you have, suddenly have this deja vu that you've been here before. There's a, there's a sense of timelessness. And, and we were, we were in this wonderful environment. Now, mind you, in his normal world, he had the largest mansion in Hollywood, uh, Gray Hall. It was beautiful, it was actual castle that was brought over in the early 1900s. And so he had everything, yachts and planes and whole bunch of um, Rolls Royces. And I said, why do you go back to that then? And instead of going back, he came to my, uh, at that time he came upstate to the Fertiler Farm and he spent three months there. And it was interesting because I had a retreat. It was in the summertime. Oh, this is funny. And uh, I could, uh, it, was, it was really very little accommodation. <clears throat> These were old bungalows. But it was so much joy that the average person came four different times during the summer, we, from Friday night to Saturday, Sunday afternoon. And we would teach them about organic farming and how to make homemade Essene breads and, and meditation. And I would do a couple lectures a day and we'd go running around the mountains, three mile course around the mountains. It was just perfect. And uh, so a couple came up and it was near dinner time and, and uh, 
I was outside and I was just putting the animals in the barn. And my buddy was just finishing raking up the chicken coop. He had owned the bib, bib over halls, you know, and, and uh, so he saw the car come up and he went over and said, hi. And they said, is this Gary Nolan? He said, yeah. And the guy gets out of the car, this is a Cadillac, and the guy gets out of the car with his wife, and they're all dressed up, right? Like, I mean, that kind of 80s tacky look. And, uh, and uh, he said, uh, get the bags out of the car. So my buddy gets the bags out of the car. We walk up, and I meet him, and we walk into our big, uh, let's say where we did all of our cooking. It was a huge kitchen, probably twice the size of this room. We had a bunch of stoves, we had a bunch of French brick ovens, and the smells were magnificent. We, we, sometimes we get carried away because I would show each guest how to make, I would give them some food and I said, now let's see what you can make with this. I don't know how to make anything. Well, let's, you know, what you've got there, all right? Let's, and I'd give them ideas. And then we'd have stuff being brought out of the organic garden and they'd make a dish, whether it was great or not, they made a dish. And so we must have had, one time I, I think we counted 72 different dishes for lunch. And there were like 50 of us. So everybody had wonderful food and every day it changed. And uh, so anyway, he, he's looking around and his wife says, Where's some, do you have chicken? We said, no, we're, we're vegans. Vegans? And I said, who told you about this place? Well, my daughter, my daughter listens to you on the radio and she says, I got to go up there. And, and so I said, well, uh, we have lots of food and we have classes. Well, what kind of classes? Well, you learn how to sprout and grow vegetables and, and uh, you have tennis, golf? No. So I said, look, clearly this is not the match um, that you had hoped that it would be. And, but I have a friend that owns Grossinger's Hotel, and they're only 20 minutes from here, so let me call them, because they've got great food. You want chicken, you want steak, they have it. And uh, they got golf course, tennis court, indoor swimming, they got everything you'd like. Okay, and what about the 250 bucks we spent? I'll, I'll give it back to you. I took two, there you are, and you can apply it towards that. In fact, you know what I'm gonna do? because you didn't get what you needed here, I'm gonna call ahead and I'll pay for your room. Okay, that's the least you could do. They're from Manhattan. So anyhow, so in the garment industry, whoa, right? For those of you, you would have to know Manhattan in the garment industry to understand what that meant. So anyhow, uh, so they wanted someone, you know, and so my friend got their suitcase, put it back in the car. And uh, he went to close, and he said, hold on a second. He said, uh, you know this company? He said, yeah, what, what's it to you? He said, you work there? Yeah, I work there. So you did work there. You don't anymore. I own that company. What do you mean you own that company? You don't own that company. Blah, blah, blah. <laughs> he says, I'm that person. I have 66,000 employees. And if this is how you speak with people, if this is how you treat people who are kind to you, if this is your attitude, I don't want someone with your attitude working in my company. That's abuse to customers. That was it. And the guy left. And he, nobody knew this. It was all outside. But here's my little buddy, little short guy. He looked like Buddha. Bald head, little belly. Wise person. Wonderful person. One of the best friends I've ever had. And he said, I didn't realize 
of how you don't know the people that work for you, you don't know the people that represent you. I don't want someone like that representing me. I said, don't fire him. I said, give him another chance. Give him a chance. You know? And he did. And, uh, but then after that, he began to sell some of his companies. Because when he finished his three months there, his belly was gone, he was healthy, and he felt good about life. He had been reinvigorated by the abundance of joy, nature, happiness, the stuff money can't buy. And he had had an abundance of stuff money could buy and wasn't happy. He had no joy or happiness, and he had no health. So that's how you can shift a mindset and ask, what kind of abundance do I want? And what happens when I have a scarcity? Can I be happy with scarcity? Yes, you can, because most of the world have scarcity. That doesn't mean they're not happy in Bhutan. That's the point of the exercise. Thank you.